Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? Today on the show, we have Tom Gilovich. So Tom is the co-director of the Cornell Center for Behavioral Economics and Decision Research. So that's a really fancy way of saying that he really deeply understands your brain and why you make the consumer decisions that you do. Uh, so today, we focus on his big idea, which is all about why you will be happier investing in experiences instead of material possessions. So Tom has done extensive research. He's written three critically acclaimed books. And you may have heard that anecdote before of just investing your money in experiences over things. But what's so fascinating about this uh, interview is that um, Tom is renowned in academia for all sorts of really extensive brain research and understanding what are the mechanisms at play that drive us to consumerism, that, that drive us towards purchasing things. And once you understand a little bit more about uh, why experiences are going to have such a, a grander impact on subjective well-being and long-term happiness, it becomes so much easier to allocate your time, your energy uh, into the places that you really want. So I really enjoyed this interview. We've got some great anecdotes, some practical insight and advice that you're going to be able to use. So without further ado, Tom Gilovich. All right. And welcome to the show, Tom Gilovich. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. Beautiful. And, and Tom, you're currently up in Ithaca, but uh, you just got back from some travels. Where, where were you in the world? Uh, most recently, I was in Barcelona for four or five days and then to uh, Scotland for about 10 days uh, where we did some hiking in the highlands. And it was uh, what a terrific place, uh, friendliest people on the planet and all sorts of natural beauty up there. Yeah, it's on, on my bucket list and Barcelona is definitely one of my favorite biking cities on the planet. So. Uh, well, very cool. Well, Tom, uh, as you know, on What's the Big Idea, we like to bring some of the smartest, most creative people on the planet in to really focus on a, a singular idea, a piece of insight that they wish people could integrate into their lives. And so you've got an incredible body of work in the realm of social psychology, behavioral economics. But for you right now, what's, what's the one idea that is most exciting present for you that you wish more people were aware of? Well, it's the idea that um, it's very seductive to want to spend our limited money on things, and things do provide value to us, um, but that value wears off very quickly and that we'd be better off spending our money on experiences, um, lessons, vacations, concert tickets, things like that. Um, there's, I think, some interesting psychology that led up to that idea and some in, interesting psychology about why that is the case. Well, I'm always fascinated by what academics choose as their, their points of research. And so for you personally, you know, what led you to this point where this was an idea that you wanted to focus on or what made it interesting for you to really dedicate a significant chunk of your life to, to exploring this idea? Um, if there's one uber idea in the study of um, happiness or psychological well-being, a, a subject that psychologists ignored for many, many years, um, but when they started to really tackle it in earnest about 30 years ago, um, one idea emerged so powerfully, which is that um, we have an incredible capacity to adapt to things. And when those things are negative, that capacity is just a great ally in our quest for well-being. Um, you know, the most dramatic examples come with people who've suffered spinal cord injuries. And, um, you know, if you ask people who haven't suffered that, uh, what, what do you think your life would be if that happened to you and you lost, less, let's say, the use of your legs or your arms or both, um, a lot of people say, oh, I don't know if I could ever get over it. I'm not sure I'd want to live and so on. And it is devastating to those people when it happens in the immediate aftermath. They are very unhappy people. Um, but 
uh, over time, uh, they adapt and they um, have lead lives that are indistinguishable from uh, the lives of people in terms of happiness, in terms of people, um, uh, you know, compared to people who haven't had that uh, misfortune befall them. So that's the, the good side of this powerful human capacity to adapt to things. Um, when it comes to positive events, on the other hand, it's a, a big enemy of happiness. We think that, oh, if only I get a raise, or if only she says yes, or uh, if only I move to California, um, then I'll be happy forever, and I'll never, I'll never sweat this small stuff again. And uh, good things do happen to you. You get that raise. She does say yes, etc. Um, and you are happy. But then it wears off. And um, this, again, we adapt to things. And adaptation is, is just a very powerful set of psychological processes that bring it about. Um, and that creates a challenge for happiness, how best to uh, maintain our happiness, our appreciation, our gratitude for things when we have this um, tendency to get used to stuff and uh, put it in the rearview mirror. Is there is there a name for that process of the mind to kind of like create stasis of like, you know, normalizing if we've experienced a trauma and then, you know, on the other end of when, say, we win the lottery, but it brings us back to the same level of happiness. Is there a name for that process? Within yeah, the it's mind? often called yeah, habituation or adaptation. Yeah, I, I had I had heard that before, and I have a I have a company called Tribute. It's all focused on on gratitude, and it's like again, it's when we talk about the idea of gratitude. I, I love talking about some of those studies because again, it's like the idea that your brain has that process in there that will ultimately just bring you back to this this stasis, this place of like just normal. And that if we just convince ourselves that achievement or acquisition of like almost anything is the answer to sustainable happiness, it's, it's not, it's just appreciation. And I know that gratitude has been a big part of your work and I'd love to get to that in the end. And so, and so when you kind of dove into this research on experience over uh, physical things, what was, what was most surprising for you as you went into this? Um, well, <laughs> one of the most surprising things is um, sort of how I got involved it in the first place. That is, I, uh, that was a message I took to heart. Um, there's a famous uh, psychologist, he's passed away in recent years, a uh, uh, giant in the field of judgment decision-making by the name of Robin Dawes, and he has um, a book on judgment decision-making in, in clinical context called House of Cards. And he talks about adaptation and, you know, tells the usual stories, much like the one I talked about, about how we adapt to things and said, but it doesn't always have to happen. Imagine that you've devoted your life not to the acquisition of things, whether those are material things versus titles or whatever. Imagine you devoted your life just to doing good in the world, to doing good deeds. Um, and he sort of invites you to consider a thought experiment. Do you think that, um, you know, Mother Teresa, who, you know, saves a certain number of people one week, feels that, ah, oh, that's not enough. I need to save more people the next week and so on, that, that she is have to, having to run this treadmill of getting ever more to get the same level of enjoyment. And, of course, that study, there's no study has been done on that, but I think we all intuit that, no, I don't think I would. Uh, adapt to that. And that was Dawes's recommendation of how to combat uh, adaptation when it comes to trying to advance your own happiness, just to live a life where you're doing good in the world. And I would, I liked that message. And so I gave it to my students in my large introductory social psychology course. And I think one year I sort of <laughs> accidentally went beyond the data. Uh, well, went beyond Dawes's message. Dawes didn't have data himself. It was a thought experiment where I said, well, the broader lesson here is, you know, don't invest in things. You'll adapt to them. Invest in experiences. And one of my TAs for the course, someone I've done lots of research with and uh, uh, now a lifelong friend, uh, Lee Van Boven, came up afterwards and said, uh, oh, that's I find that really interesting. What You know, what study supports that? Uh, and I went, ooh. I guess I did go beyond the data. Uh, so he and I set about doing some research to see whether, in fact, 
people get more enduring long-term satisfaction from the uh, experiences they buy, the things they do rather than the things they have. And what was some of the data that you came up with there that's most compelling for, for supporting the claim? Um, well, we started in the easiest way possible. Um, it's always a good place to start, um, which is we asked people, think about the most gratifying, in one condition, the most gratifying material purchase you've made in the last, let's say, six months, two years, five years. We've done different intervals. It turns out not to matter. Um, do you have a particular purchase you've made in mind? People say yes. They provide a brief description. And then we have them rate it in terms of how happy has this thing made you? Uh, how much do you consider the money you spent on it to be money well spent? How satisfied are you with uh, that purchase? And then other people in another condition are asked the same thing, only about the um, most significant experiential purchase they've made uh, in the last six months, two years, five years, and so on. And Tom, can I, I, want, I want to pause for one moment on that because I think that it's like, even as you said it, I just want to acknowledge like the response that I had in me. When you said, think about the physical purchase you've made that was most significant. And I just had this, this moment of real, I was just like, I, it was hard to really think about anything, anything. And I have some things that like are nice and that I enjoy, but almost like the, the act of actually acknowledging in the past tense, something you purchased and how that's really brought you a lot of joy. I just have never really, I don't, you don't think about that, right? It's when you're thinking about stuff, at least for me, it's always like the next thing is what seems to be on our mind and not the joy of what we've already acquired. So I want you to continue to get into it, but I just wanted to call it out because I think it's an interesting thing that I hope listeners actually do. Yeah, no, that's a good anecdotal uh, bit of support for the thesis. If it's hard to come up with a material example that reinforces just how ultimately not satisfying they are. Uh, when I give talks about this, I often start them with, there was a great New Yorker cartoon from a number of years ago, a guy's, uh, on his deathbed, there's a few people around him. It's his last moments. Uh, and the caption is, I should have bought more crap. And, uh, you know, the reason it's a cartoon, of course, is we all know no one would say that on their deathbed, uh, whereas they might bemoan, uh, you know, relationships they hadn't uh, pursued or developed or attended to um, and experiences they hadn't had. Yeah, Absolutely. And so I, I cut you off in your train of thought. I apologize. I wanted to call that up. But so if you were to get back in there in terms of, and so what did you ask people about experiences? Um, so the same questions. They're asking the same questions. How happy uh, did this purchase make you? Does it make you now? How satisfied are you with it? How much do you consider it money well spent? And what you find is, you know, people are pretty good at spending their money. That is, they spend them on things to advance their happiness. And they do, that is, um, it's above the mid, the average is above the midpoint of the scale for the material possessions as well. It's not like they're horrible things. People spend their money on uh, all sorts of material things that make them happy. Um, but they don't make them as happy as the experiential purchases that uh, they make. Um, so that's just the simplest way to do it. We also get people at one time to tell us about a significant material or experiential purchase. We say, thank you very much. They come back to the laboratory uh, a couple weeks later, um, and we have them read about the purchase they described before. And then we monitor their mood and have them fill out a mood scale. And just thinking about this gratifying experience you've had Put you in a better mood than thinking about whatever gratifying material good you're able to recall. Um, and then finally, another way we do this, uh, we borrow a technology that lots of happiness researchers use now, which is um, called experience sampling. There's an app you put on your smartphone that beeps you at random times. And uh, when it does, you've agreed to answer a very brief questionnaire. What are you doing right now? How happy are you? Um, and we've done that. And, you know, most people are doing one of the nice things about, by the way, um, about experience sampling is you really can rigorously find out what are the things that people do uh, that when they're doing them, they seem to be happiest. Um, and what are the things that uh, 
people do that where they're not really happy. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting things there, including the fact that people are not the bottom of the list uh, of common activities is commuting. Um, people just don't like doing it. So if you can live close to where you need to be, you're, you're ahead of the game. And one of the interesting things about commuting is unlike all that stuff with which we began, uh, the powerful role of adaptation, people don't adapt to it very, very much. It's, if, if it's bad when you first, the first day of your long commute, unlike a lot of things, it's going to be bad, uh, months later. And, uh, the reason for that almost certainly is that um, we adapt to constant things, things that we're experiencing. And if your commute was problematic in the same way every day, you probably would adapt to it. But uh, problematic commutes are problematic precisely because it's a different version of hell every day. You know, one day it's a traffic jam here, another it's a traffic jam over there, another day it's someone yelling at you, um, etc. That's a, an, another little nugget on the path to happiness of just living close to wherever you're working. If you can make that happen. And then, I think it's worth um, many thousands of dollars in salary. Um, if you, if you think, okay, I'm going to make X amount more, but I'll have a longer commute and the X amount will compensate for that commute. X better be very big uh, or it's not going to compensate for it. If you can start your day, not by getting in a car or getting in a car for a very short period, uh, you're just much better off. The, the data there are incredibly solid. Well, it, it reminds me of, you know, even we're, we're talking about experience today, but when I was probably 22 years old, I had just started my first company, this, this children's nonprofit, and I was at a conference called the Summit Series. And one of the first speakers I saw was I think it was Tim Ferriss, and I didn't even really know who Tim Ferriss was, but you know, four hour work week. And uh, someone asked him, he was like, I just got offered two million dollars to build my business in Kansas City, and I fucking hate Kansas City. <laughs> and uh, but it's this amazing opportunity to build my business. And the thing that I love that he said, he was like, you know, if you are smart enough to build a business to go out and like raise money then you should be smart enough to live where you want to live. Because he said that it's like the single most important factor to living a good life is if you live where you want to live, you're going to have access to people that are aligned with you to experiences that you actually want to be a part of. And I always love that, the importance of living where you really want to live, because that just opens up so much more of the things that are really going to be valuable in your life. Um, I think that's true, although yeah, um, there are some things to be careful about there. That is to say, when we think about um, living in certain places, there's often one thing associated with that place that we focus on. And when we're living there and we are doing that one thing, we are happier or less happy if it's a negative thing. But most of the time, we don't spend our time doing that. So there's a famous study of would you be happier if you lived in California that the average respondent says yes, because you think of it's the golden state. Um, they have great weather and Beaches. we like great weather more than foul weather. And we focus on that and say, yeah, I'll be happier if I lived in California. But you survey California respondents and the comparison state in this case was Ohio. Um, you know, people are equally happy in both of those places because you're not out enjoying the weather all the time. And there's some downsides to California. And uh, so all of this is to say, I just want to put a mild defense of, I don't, I've never lived in Kansas city. I think <laughs> once I just want to put a slight defense there that, you know, if you, if you live there and you're able to walk to work, I'm sure they have beautiful parks and, and there are great people there too. Um, so, so yes, yeah. being able to carve out your life where you're doing more of the things that are valuable to you and fewer of the things that uh, you don't find gratifying, yeah, that's going to make you happier. But um, a lot of those things you can do nicely. It's a nice statement about the world uh, that you can do most of those things almost anywhere. And so, so tell me a little more about in terms of what, what's the inherent nature of experience versus things that, you know, has this, this sustainable impact on happiness? What, what's the fundamental difference between these things and how it registers with us? 
Yeah. So the the key is that um, experiences, kind of surprisingly or kind of paradoxically, um, are things that you don't adapt to as much. So they provide more enduring satisfaction. In fact, one of the reasons um, I find the message of this research so important is that it counteracts a seemingly solid line of argument that people make, which is, look, I have limited money. Um, I don't know whether to buy this thing, a new dining room table, a set of bookshelves, a a new suit to wear to work, or um, I can take my family to uh, the big island of Hawaii. Uh, I know I would enjoy the big island, but it would be over really quickly, but we'd always have the dining room table. Um, and that sounds very solid, but in fact, uh, going, again, going back to where we started, you buy the dining room table, it does make you happy. You put it in there. Oh, it looks great. First couple of times you have people over, you're appreciating that the, the dinner is better because you have a better dinner table, but then you get used to it and, um, it's like it's not even there. So although materially, of course, the material thing does exist longer than the experience, psychologically, surprisingly, it's exactly the opposite. Our experiences live on in a whole bunch of different ways. So that's the that's the broader message. And then the question becomes, what are those different ways? What, what are the things that make experiences live on uh, longer? And one of them is that they connect us to other people more. Um, we often do experience, you go to the big island of Hawaii with other people. Um, and many of our material possessions are things that just belong to us, uh, that we don't share with other people. Um, and even if we don't share the experience with someone, you, you go to the big island by yourself, Whenever you're with anyone else and the subject of the Big Island comes up and they've been there, you've got a social connection with them. You start, you tell stories about it um, and your experiences connect you. Um, just to put this in a context, like a thought experiment, imagine that, uh, you know, um, we haven't met in person, but we meet sometime and you see that I have, you know, the exact same smartphone or the exact same computer or exact same running shoes. Um, And the fact that we have that similarity means that we feel a little closer to each other. Uh, There's a little bit of kinship there because we've bought the same thing. But now imagine it's not a material thing. Imagine that, uh, oh, you just went to Barcelona too, and I did. Oh, where did you stay? What did you do? And so on. We're starting to trade these accounts. The fact that we've shared that experiment experience uh, creates even more social connection and um, even more uh, kinship. So our experiences connect us to other people um, through the experiences we've shared, either directly or indirectly with them, and the stories we trade. We did a, a study where we had people who didn't know each other have a get acquainted conversation with a twist Uh, We told one group that uh, they could only talk about experiences that they had purchased themselves. Another group, uh, material possessions that they had purchased themselves. They talked for about 10 minutes, and then we separate them and have each of them rate each other, how much they liked each other um, and how much they'd want to spend more time with each other and rate the conversation, how gratifying, exciting, fulfilling it was, and so on. And uh, I think you know what what the result was that people enjoy um, each other and the conversation more when they talked about experiences than when they talked about material possessions. It makes me think of what about experiences where the act of, I'm thinking about like collectors where like the experience of connecting with like a community is based around the acquisition of like, for me, I collected baseball cards when I was younger and like in Brooklyn where we live, there's like this store here where people line up for hours to get sneakers the second that they come out. Uh-huh. Did, you know what I mean? How does it relate to experiences like that? Yeah, well, number of things to say about that. Let's come back to the the sneaker lineup in a second, which is another way that we've tested this idea that I think uh, is uh, informative. Um, but the question you raise is a great one, and it relates to um, a concern often people will express, which is, 
okay, I, I get it. I bet that's true for most people. But what about really materialistic people? Um, and it turns <laughs> out there's a scale of, you know, psychological materialism, psychological orientation to life. And um, they show this effect. That is, if you score high on materialism, you uh, likely exhibit this effect a little less than the broader population. But still, experiences, even for those people, give them uh, greater satisfaction. But now, notice that's materialism in general and having a material approach to life. What the question you raised is, what about those people who are basically connoisseurs of a particular slice of the material that I really like my baseball cards or my basketball shoes or automobiles or whatever it is. Um, that hasn't been tested, but I think you're onto something. You're likely to see a reversal there, not a general reversal that for those people, material goods are um, more gratifying than experiences. But for those people in that domain, the material goods they buy are very much like experiences, or at least they provide the same kinds of things that experiences do. You're in this community of people who have tons of knowledge and you can't wait to get together with them and exchange, uh, you know, what's the latest coming down the road. And your connoisseurship provides the same social connection that experiences tend to do. It also provides an identity and you know, we'll talk a little bit later about experiences contributing more to our identities than our material goods do. So they, the thing that you have a passionate interest in, if you're a car collector or whatever, um, it puts you in a community of car collectors. It gives you an identity as a car collector that uh, functions very much like experiences do. That's fascinating. And so what was the example about the, the sneaker heads that you were talking about? Yeah, okay. So the... Um, Two examples, the two types of data that I mentioned to support this idea that we get more enduring satisfaction uh, from our experiences. Since we're interested in how enduring it is, it makes sense that we would look at retrospective evaluations. How long has this lasted? Um, and that's where we started. But what about looking forward to something? Um, is it when you're looking forward to an experience, you're going to go to this um highly acclaimed restaurant in, you know, when you visit a city or you're waiting to, um, you know, you've got tickets to go see Sting in, you know, Brooklyn or whatever, um, or you're waiting to see a Celtic Nick playoff game. Um, imagining far in the future when the Knicks are back in the playoffs. <laughs> the Knicks are um, again. That was not the most apt example. Um, <laughs> Um, what does that feel like? And contrast that with, okay, you do need a new dining room table and uh, you've purchased it and it's going to be delivered. How does that feel? And presumably both cases are going to have positive anticipation. You're going to feel good about it. But we wondered if it nonetheless had a slightly different flavor. And the insight here was really uh, looking back to when we were kids and thinking about Christmas and he's like, oh, can't we, you know, 10 days till Christmas, five days till Christmas. And there was this materialist bounty and you were excited. You were made happier by thinking about it, but nonetheless, it had a little bit of an edge to it. Like, I've got to, why isn't this day coming? Whereas experiences, you often don't want the data coming. Part of the enjoyment about a vacation is looking forward to it. Uh, there's a famous economist at uh, Carnegie Mellon, George Lowenstein, who did these studies about anticipatory savoring uh, many years ago. And his colorful example that um, I think speaks volumes, he told people, imagine you won a contest. The prize is that you get to kiss your favorite movie star. And you can do it whenever you want. When would you want to do that? And prediction from the strict reading of economic theory is if it's a good thing, you want to have it sooner rather than later. So you should sure. say it right now. Um, but uh, his point was no one thinks they'd want to do it right now. I know if you won that, you'd want to enjoy thinking about it for a while. And it turns out about three days from now is the optimal time for people to kiss their favorite movie star. Um, 
And so we did an experience sampling study where we, um, again, beat people at random time. Some of them were waiting literally in line to get the latest Air Jordans. Um, and other people were um, waiting for to get into concerts, to go to a restaurant, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out, uh, as predicted, that people are in a people are in good moods in both cases. Uh, they're waiting for something they've spent their money on to advance their happiness, and by and large, they do that. Uh, but they're happier waiting for um, experiences rather than possessions. And then we, uh, to top that off, we did an archival analysis where we just looked at news accounts of. Um, you know, the, you hear about these accounts of people waiting in line and some kind of violence happens. Sometimes it's people lining up for a concert. Sometimes it's people lining up to get the latest Air Jordans. And uh, what we found is way disproportionately, it was people waiting in line uh, for things rather than experiences. And again, there's a little bit of an edge waiting for that thing. Um, it's a calmer, uh, more tranquil, pleasant anticipation when you're waiting experiences. So uh, having gone through this research, I'm curious, how has your own findings impacted how you live your own life? Um, it's, you know, the, the message of this research to individuals is uh, not that you shouldn't buy material things and you have to live the life of, you know, some kind of ascetic and, uh, just have the barest material conditions, uh, barely meet your material needs. It's not that. It's just, look, material things are a bit too seductive and just devote a little bit more of your expenditures in the experiential direction, and that will pay off for you. And so that's the uh, advice I give the world. So I need to follow my own advice, and I've done that. That is, I, you know, I pretty sure I do more experiential things than I would otherwise if I hadn't done this research. And, uh, and not only do I not regret that, I think it's, uh, it's paid off for me. Beautiful. And I mean, and what's fascinating is, you know, you talked about how seductive uh, things can be, and it's not even just, I think the inherent nature of the thing, but the people who are pushing the thing, you know, and I, a couple of years back, I watched, uh, a great documentary called the century of the self. Are you familiar with it? No. And so basically it, it talks about the, the founding father of public relations and how he basically leveraged uh, some of the popular psychology of Freud coming at the time. So post-World War II, how could they use the, uh, the psychology that was becoming available to basically establish these physical items as things that people needed um, and like how they could manipulate individuals to just basically get them to procure more stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about this knowledge that we have here about how, you know, how much happier people are when they spend on experiences, you know, what do you think is, how can we combat with everything that's being shoved down our throats through social media and advertising every single day? What can we do to become more conscious and to actually, you know, not be so influenced by all the messaging that's being directed at us all the time. Um, I'm actually pretty optimistic. Um, that is, um, this, I've had no difficulty selling this counter message. That is people resonate with it. Um, the existence of that cartoon that I described earlier sort of captures it. Um, there's more experiential marketing going on now as a result. And also, it's an easy, I think people can, we don't have to do that much to get people to recognize they're going to be happier by tilting their expenditures more in the experiential direction. Um, because some implicit knowledge of that, I think, is there. People resonate to it. I think we see this, for example, there was this um, telling, you know, um, pair of events that I think speaks volumes here. Um, sometime last year, I don't remember when it was, there were these two high-profile celebrity um, suicides. Uh, Kate Spade, I believe her name was, yeah. uh, who's known for material things, these stores and handbags, uh, and Anthony Bourdain, who's known for 
you know, parts unknown, getting out in the world and having experiences, being around a table with people eating and traveling the world. And the let the outpouring of emotionality around Anthony Bourdain um, was much more so than in the other case. I, you know, people are big fans of Kate Spades as well. I hope I'm getting that name right. It uh, is, yeah. And there was some the affection headache. for her as well. But it just paled in comparison to that um, directed at Anthony Bourdain's suicide. And I think the, that's an anecdote that supports this idea that um, some way – in some sense, we all recognize that a life spent um, doing things is um, a richer life than a life spent acquiring things. Well said. And, and you know, as you've done this research, I know that you, you've also thought about some of the policy implications about, you know, how we can use this to basically integrate into society more effectively. What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, if there's if there's... Well, let's say there's two things, two takeaways from this research, I think, for me. One is the one I already said, you know, what do we personally do, which is just devote a little more expenditure in the experiential direction. You'll be happier. Uh, if that's true individually, it's got to be true collectively as well. And uh, here we've uh, coined the term, uh, maybe it existed before we thought we coined it, of, you know, uh, we as societies need to build, uh, attend to our experiential infrastructure. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk now about um, passing bills to create better infrastructure. And what they mean by that is really a transportation infrastructure. And that's super important. Um, but in addition, um, if people get more enduring satisfaction from doing things, we need to make it easier for people to do things. You can't go hiking if there are no trails, can't enjoy the beach if it, they're polluted, um, you know, can't go biking if there aren't uh, biking trails or biking lanes, safe places to uh, ride your bike, uh, etc. cetera. Um, no place to go out and enjoy the natural environment if we don't attend to our national parks, uh, etc. And, you know, there's been this mantra in the United States um, ever since the Reagan revolution of it's your money, you know how to spend it better than any bureaucrat does. Um, well, if we all did that, we'd be attending, we'd be spending, let's say that's true, we can spend it better in some narrow sense, attending to our narrow self-interest, but none of us are going to individually create those bike trails and um, clean beaches and national parks and so on. There has to be a role for government expenditures to create an experiential infrastructure so we can all have an easier time that we're not thwarted when we try to do these things that are so rewarding, getting out into nature and being inspired and being out in the world with other people. Um, you know, the, our national parks were have been described as America's best idea. Uh, that was a public investment. Uh, it's not an individual investment. Yeah, absolutely. And especially at a time when, you know, connection and mass is kind of dropping through the floor and, to have these types of public spaces and opportunities to go and do and be with people feels more important than ever. Yep. Yeah. Wholeheartedly agree with that. And so you know, a lot of your research here, it talks about kind of the impact on, on happiness. And I'm curious because you spend so much time, what is, what does that mean to you? Um, well, it's a good, a good question. Um, and the definitional issues were part of the reason that, you know, I alluded earlier to the fact that psychologists were sort of slow to study happiness. One of them was the definitional issue. Another one closely related is how do you measure this thing? Um, and those were problems that created some initial pause, but uh, that threshold has been crossed. It's been measured in a whole bunch of different ways that coalesce together. Um, on the definitional front, um, there's a lot of consensus, it seems to be the case, and it's been intuited uh, as, you know, ever since the Greeks of, you know, one is just pure moment-to-moment -moment pleasure. How, how much fun are you having right now? How pleasurable is this experience? And the other, um, so 
Greeks would call that hedonia. Um, and the other is a much more cognitive judgment you make about your life. How satisfied are you with your life? They refer to this as eudaimonia. Um, and that, to have the kind of life where you say, yeah, I'm happy with my life, often means you've uh, foregone lots of pleasurable experiences in order to work hard to, uh, you know, become a talented cellist or guitarist or whatever, um, to be a well-read person, to get your PhD, to start uh, a business and so on, um, in order to make those summary judgments that make you feel good. Uh, eudaimonia often means, sac- doesn't, doesn't always mean, but uh, often means sacrificing some hedonia. And there are different ways of measuring uh, the different types of states, the um, experience sampling, how happy are you right now? That's particularly good at uh, assessing hedonia. How do you feel right now? Yeah. Brain imaging looks at what you're, how, what the brain is doing right now. And I love that that it has such a direct question for hedonia for eudaimonia. Is there a question that also does speak to the presence of that? Um, yeah, there's a, like a satisfaction with life scale, how, you know, it's several items. Uh, how much do you agree with certain statements? Like in many ways, my life is close to my ideal. The more you embrace that, uh, you know, the more satisfied. Can you say it one more, yeah. it one more time? Yeah. You, you're asked to uh, indicate how much you agree with a variety of statements, including in most ways, my life is close to my ideal. Uh, the more you say that, then the more we, more confident we are that you you feel good about your life. I've heard I've heard the quote once. I think it said that happiness is doing what you want most, not necessarily what you want right now, which makes me think of it in oh. in a way. Yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah. Very cool. So, what if you look back on your life and you were to look at an experience uh, that has created this feeling of sustainable happiness? What what stands out for you as one of the the peak experiences of your your life thus far? Um. Well, you know, it's funny to say peak experience. That's almost getting you down. That kind of connotes how intensely happy were you in that moment, um, which loads more on the hedonia part. Um, and I thought we were going down the eudaimonic direction. Yeah, well, so, so how how would you phrase that question to speak more to the eudaimonia? The most meaningful. Yeah, or what are the things that have contributed most to uh, whatever feelings one has about their life right now? And, um, you know, for me, it's being incredibly lucky of meeting the person that I've spent my life with, uh, my wife, Karen Gilovich, Karen Dashoff at the time. And uh, that's, you know, there's so many ways we could not it, it would it would life would have unfolded without meeting her and uh i'm sure my life would be much impoverished if uh, that had been the case um but you know getting back to uh and that just seems fluky and, and uh magical um but getting back to what we were talking about before of making the sacrificing some kinds of hedonic experiences in uh, order to create a greater sense of long-term well-being, you know, deciding to pursue a PhD in psychology um, and giving the, you know, the life I have as a professor of psychology, who's able to try to research what I think are interesting questions. I mean, that has been huge. Um, and it didn't seem, you know, looking back, I don't, it's not, oh, it was such a grind. And I'm sure there were more times when it was a grind than I'm recalling. Um, but, um, you know, there are a lot of things in life that have that property. Um, another fluky kind, well, that had some fluky elements too. I just happened to be going to a graduate program at a time when some revolutionary things were happening in the field of judgment decision-making that were just very inspiring and made it very easy to do that kind of work. Um, but, you know, other kind of fluky things. I remember when I was really, uh, I don't know, it must've been like 
nine years old, a distant cousin gave me and my brother a basketball hoop and we put it up in our garage and just shot basketball hour after hour. And that led to uh, an investment where, you know, it's not a great basketball player by any means, but good enough to play in my high school team. And it's led to um, just a lifetime of sports and uh, physical exercise that's been gratifying. And, you know, I often wonder, uh, they hadn't given me that basketball hoop. Maybe I would have invested in something else that wouldn't have been so gratifying in the long term, so productive in the long term. Beautiful. You know, Tom, I think it's it's so powerful because we've been having this conversation. It's the the core idea of, again, invest in experiences versus material things to be happier. It feels like personally and even, you know, on, on a massive, on a wider scale, it's just something that we kind of intuit, but understanding it on a deeper level just keeps it more top of mind and I think frames it um, a little more centrally when we're actually making decisions every single day. And so, you know, as we, as we come to the, the close of the interview, um, what would be, what would you say to people who are kind of in these positions of whether they're about to procure a thing or making a decision about a trip or the, the living room table? What's the message that you, you want those people to kind of have in their head as they're making those decisions in their own lives? Um, you know, when you're, it's easy. When we weigh the different reasons to, let's say, take a trip or not, or buy a thing or not, it's it's pretty easy to get the calculus wrong. Oh, it's going to be scary to go over there. Oh, I don't like the, um, you know, TSA check-ins anymore. It's such a hassle. I don't want to do that. Or the weather's iffy. What if it rains the whole time? Um, one of the Forget all that, you know, have the experience. You'll be surprised. One of the great things about experiences, they don't have to turn out perfectly to give you what you want. Whereas the material thing really needs to deliver what was advertised. If you have a car that breaks down all the time, it's annoying. It's You, you wouldn't say it's a charming car. Oh, it's very charming that it uh, breaks down all the time. Uh, or a computer that doesn't work. That's enraging. On the other hand, you go on a trip. In fact, there's some work on this, disappointing experiences. Um, they're disappointing in the moment. They don't deliver the hedonia that you were seeking when you sought them out. Uh, but in retrospect, they become a big part of who you are. They become great stories. There's a study done on uh, the experience of uh, Disneyland. I think it was Disneyland rather than Disney World. Uh, you ask people, you know, two weeks in advance, oh, your family's taking a trip to Disneyland. Uh, what do you think about it? And they're just, oh, it's going to be great. Can't wait to do the rides and the family's going to bond together, et cetera, et cetera. They interview people at Disneyland. Eh, <laughs> it's not nearly as positive that everyone's arguing about which rides to go to. The food is expensive. It's really hot out. No one's having that great a time. Um, and then they interview them two weeks afterwards. How was your trip to uh, Disney? land. Oh, it was great. Family bonded, rides were great, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of our experiences are that way. You go on a camping trip and, you know, you get lost for a period while you're lost and can't find the trail. It's awful. Um, it's got fear associated with it and inconvenience. Now we'll never get to the end in the time that we thought. Um, but in retrospect, man, remember that time we got lost on the John Muir trail and blah, blah, blah. And it becomes so a I'm, I'm curious about this because I, I have such a, a personal example of this. If I remember like several years back, I was in Mexico and we were on the beach and I got food poisoning. And then my wife and my best friend got there and the beach had like a 7-Eleven right on the shores. And we're like, this is not it. We got to get out of here. <laughs> and so we decided to spend a, like astronomical amount of money on a car because it's New Year's to drive from Sayulita to Mexico City which ends up being like a 36 hour drive because of traffic and all sorts of crazy stuff. And it was so, it was so unpleasant in the moment. And I was literally sick and we we're in the car and it's supposed to be relaxing. But now we look back on that and it's one of our favorite memories of all time. Yeah. So what, what's happening in the brain that, that transforms it that way? That seems to be, like you said, like such a trend. Um, well, part of it comes from uh, this, a, a theory that a social psych 
colleague has um, advanced called construal level theory, um, that when in the moment we think of things in low level details, when something is close, like if you're taking a camping trip tomorrow, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about, do I have enough food? Do I have enough food for breakfast and lunch and dinner? You're dividing the experience into fine little categories. Do I have enough stuff if it rains? And uh, you're all thinking at a low level of abstraction. If it's a camping trip, a year from now, you're thinking of a high level. Oh, yeah, there's food, there's clothing, there's very few categories. I'm going to think about it. It's all about uh, exploration and self-actualization. We think in broad terms for things that are far away in time or in, or in space. Um, and so when you were there, <laughs> you're focused on <laughs> your upset stomach and nausea commands your attention and says, you're miserable right now. Um, but, you know, you forget about that over time. And uh, the, the drive from where you were to Mexico City, it was probably crowded in the car and had some unpleasantness when the details weren't very pleasant. But the meaning, the time together that you had uh, with your friends and seeing Mexico City when, you know, oh, you're the kind of person who can overcome this hardship and have that experience. Those are all high level things. And um, it's easier to have those high level appreciations when it's uh, uh, something that you experienced as opposed to something you are experiencing. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Uh, well, again, Tom, I've, I've enjoyed the call. And, and uh, one thing that's like top of mind is I, I almost like I'm thinking here in terms of technology because I, I, I built some technology as well. As, I like want to I want to create a, a web app that basically just pops up something on my screen every time before I purchase something. It's just like almost like a Marie Kondo. Like, does this bring you joy? What else could you be spending your money on? Yeah. It's yeah. just like a top of mind. Like, are you sure? Um, and you've also that made would be me great. Think, yeah. And just had like a little menu of a set of experiences you could do. It's <laughs> like, so here's what else can you be doing? And like, you're making me think about a jacket I bought on New Year's and I'm like, man, I really didn't want that jacket today. But, uh, so thank you for making me feel bad about my purchases. Cause it's a, it's a lovely reminder of, of what really does matter. And I appreciate you taking it deeper. And I know it's going to have a, a positive impact on a lot of, uh, not only my own decisions, but our listeners as well. So, before we let you go, are there uh, any places online right now that people can connect with you and your work if they want to take it a little bit deeper? Um, yeah, I maintain, you know, like all academics, I have an um, academic website that describes uh, my research um, and uh, lists my publications. Um, it's if you just go to the Cornell Psychology Department, you'll find me. Uh, I'm, I'm easy to find. Beautiful. And we'll have uh, all of uh, Tom's great books in the show notes. So you guys can check that out and find him on social media as well. So Tom, thank you so much for your time and everyone remember experiences over things. It's science. Thanks. Tom. Thanks, Andrew. This was, this was fun. All right. And we will talk to you soon.